This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. I'm Max Flight. If you're new to the Airplane Geeks Podcast, welcome. We're happy to have you join us. We're the weekly podcast that dives into all aspects of aviation. We typically talk about the week's aviation news and feature a conversation with an industry guest. We also have segments from contributors, listener feedback and questions, and other aviation topics we think you'll find interesting. Well, as longtime listeners know, we often take the week off when our normal Monday recording day falls on or near a holiday. And that's the case this week with New Year's Day. But we don't want to leave you without something to listen to, so we bring you a bits and pieces episode with pre-recorded segments. That's the case this week. Here's what we have. First, Brian and Micah recorded a fascinating interview with Christopher Chaput, the president and CFO of DG Fuels, LLC. That company is bringing a SAF production facility to Loring Commerce Center in Limestone, Maine. That's the former Loring Air Force Base. And they will be using waste carbon and stranded electricity to make this aviation fuel. Then Brian and I speak with Dr. Uri Yuroshami, co-founder and chief AI at Fetcher. That company is using advanced techniques to give airlines the ability to employ a continuous pricing model for ticket prices. We get into dynamic pricing and continuous pricing in some detail, why airlines are stuck with old pricing technology, and the benefits of new AI methods for airlines and for their customers. Finally, Micah gives us his AvGeek look back at 2022. Okay, to start us off, here's Brian and our main man Micah with Chris Shapu, the president and CFO of DG Fuels. And again, the topic is the production of sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF. So as some of you know, I've been a skeptic about sustainable aviation fuel for some time. I mean, regular listeners may recall my long essay, and some people call it a rant, from Airplane Geeks episode 655 that, that I titled Smoke and Mirrors, or, or I'll Take the Free Lunch, Please. Now, in most cases, SAF is just a dance of smoke and mirrors, but it certainly doesn't seem that way with DG Fuels. When I read the news story about DG Fuels bringing SAF production facilities to Loring Commerce Center in Limestone, Maine, that's the former Loring Air Force Base, well, I just thought that would be incredible because they're using waste carbon and stranded electricity to make this project. I said to myself, this sounds like it's finally the real thing. So we invited Christopher Chaput, president and CFO of DG Fuels, to the podcast to talk to us about what seems to be the first real sustainable SAF production that's come to my attention. Chris. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thank you, Micah. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start off for our listeners that may not be aware. What's SAF? Well, SAF stands for Sustainable Aviation Fuel. It's a subset of sort of a broader concept of biofuels. In particular, it's a sustainable synthetic biofuel that meets ASTM requirements. ASTM is the organization that sets the standards for what can go into aircraft engines. So SAF is, is basically ASTM compliant fuel. It's a, called a drop-in fuel because you can mix it 50-50 under current law with existing Jet A or Jet A1. 
and you don't have to do anything else. There's no infrastructure changes. You just, you mix it and you drop it right into the engine and away you go. And in fact, I think most of us have flown on commercial aircraft that are fueled, at least in part, by SAF, probably didn't even know it. So Chris, for our listeners, okay, for me, can you also define what a biofuel is? Is that any fuel that's anything other than a dead dinosaur? Basically, that's true. I was actually asked that question a few days ago, so I looked up the definition. I I believe it's any type of fuel that's derived from living matter. So very, very broad Ethanol, for example, is something that's much more ubiquitous, at least at this point, than SAF that I think many people are familiar with. So it's a fuel that's made from originally from some type of organic waste, could be municipal solid waste, it could be agricultural waste like corn stover, even cotton gin waste. In our facility, we use um, timber waste, but there's also other systems where you use basically solar, use the power of the sun to create you know, the components that you then sort of chemically rearrange into something that is the chemical equivalent of jet fuel that works in aircraft. That's the beauty of SAF is because what you just described is that we may be flying on it, we don't know it. The engine doesn't know the difference. It's the same thing. It's just instead of being refined from dead dinosaurs, it's refined from, again, some kind of biological fuel of some sort or another. And and that's what makes it so easy to use, not necessarily easy to make. And that's where you come in. You found a great way to make it and a great way to do it really sustainably. We believe so. You know, I learn something new every day, and I think it pays to be humble in this business because we're at the dawn of an entirely new industry. And there's a number of companies, most of the innovation are coming from smaller private companies like ours. And everyone's doing it, even though there's three or four different pathways that are somewhat common to everyone's approach, everybody comes at it from a slightly different angle, whether it's a different process or a different feedstock. But I think what we've done. And believe me, there's been 11 or 12 years of trial and error in trying to come up with a very robust system that's workable, that's bankable, that really uses limited quantities of biomass that are out there, uses it as absolutely efficiently as possible in a system that really cranks down the production costs as much as possible. Because the whole goal here is to come up with something that's big enough to matter and uh, can be produced on economic terms such that investors are willing to invest in it and airlines are willing to buy it at a price that they deem reasonable. And that's the challenge. I think the way we do it, which is unique uh, among our our competitors, I think as far as I can tell, we may have the best mousetrap to date, um, knock on wood. I think we convert 97% of all the carbon in the timber waste we use into jet fuel. And that may be two or three times the uh, the carbon conversion that uh, that other systems use. And and to put it in concrete terms, we basically can make more SAF using less biomass. And in a world where you have constrained amounts of biomass available, that's going to matter. It also brings down our cost of production and you know, hopefully allows us to have a little bit of an edge when it comes to attracting capital. Chris, you talk about doing unique things. You guys are certainly special in this regard, and I want to get into some of the technical details in a bit. But a unique thing with you, you're a lawyer and you've gotten into the aviation business, now the biofuel business. I'm just really curious as to how that transition happened. 
oh, Brian, you're calling me on my legal background. People ask me what I did for a living and I, I told them, but I always I always joke that I'm always trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. And now at the, at the young age of 62, I think maybe I finally found my niche. But yeah, I practiced law for five years, loved it. I had the opportunity to pivot a little bit and do something a little more commercial. And so I went into the airline business, worked at the old Northwest Airlines, um, which was based in Minnesota, where I grew up. Did that for nine years. Absolutely loved it. Switched out of law, essentially, more on the business side. I handled capital markets at Northwest and all special projects in basically in-house business development and and M&A. After Northwest, I again pivoted and went into investment banking with Morgan Stanley, moved my family to New York and uh, basically covered airlines and aircraft leasing companies and other transportation companies uh, at, from Morgan Stanley. That's where I met my partner, Mike Darcy, who called up one day. And you know, he's, Mike is probably one of the smartest guys I've ever met. And he's always had these really groundbreaking, innovative thoughts. And initially, the projects that we looked at were you know, involved military dual use ships. You know, well, we probably don't need to get into that, but but uh, you know, Mike always had innovative projects, and well after I left Morgan Stanley, we kept the dialogue up. I mean, we probably met in 2001, and we've been speaking on different projects ever since. When he started the SAF program 12 years ago, I was on the advisory board. Over time, I became a little more active. I'm, a, I'm an investor in the company. And I've been full time for about the last five years or so. But you know, there's many things that that I do in my day to day work uh, as president and CFO of DG. That's arguably legal work. We we do a lot of contracts. We do a lot of negotiations. We do a lot of financings. So uh, for me, I feel as though I found sort of the highest and best use finally for my educational background. Anyway, yeah, just a really interesting transition. Yeah, thank you. It's amazing because you started off in law, then you took your law into the airlines and you took the airlines into investment and then you took the investment into SAF. It's like a real, you're you're almost, and you're going to be, it's like, you're going to be back with the airlines soon pitching to them. (laughs) As you say, in sustainability, we're looking for that circular uh, economy. And uh, I've certainly had a circular career. Well, let's talk about the biofuel, the the SAF that you're going to be making. One of the things you mentioned ethanol earlier, and one of the things that drives me nuts about ethanol, the ethanol that we see in our gasoline is that it's not always made from waste. It's usually made and refined from corn. And if you're growing corn, you need to fertilize corn. And if you fertilize corn, that means you're using natural gas to fertilize it because that's where the fertilizer comes from. So it's not really that clean. And it takes a tremendous amount of water to grow as well. Mm. But what you're doing... And what I am just amazed about is that you're using waste products, wood pulp waste products, and you're using stranded electricity, electricity that wouldn't be used any other way to make this product that's necessary to the aviation industry. No, that's that's very cool. And our system, you know, just maybe step back a little bit. I mean, what we do, we use a, a Fisher Tropes system. And, and for those, for most people, I, I wasn't familiar with Fisher Tropes until five or six years ago. But this is a technology that's been around since I think 1925 for making liquid fuels out of other things. And so we get it basically to make fuel via Fisher Tropes, you need to match up hydrogen and carbon monoxide. So all our carbon, carbon monoxide comes from agricultural waste. We choose to use at least initially timber waste so we're not cutting down any trees. Excuse me one second, just to be sure that I heard you correctly. Carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide? Carbon monoxide. Wow. 
I yes. had no idea. So in many cases, which is actually an additional part of our story, because we get the carbon monoxide basically out of the, out of the agricultural waste, in our case, timber waste, and we get the hydrogen that we have to match up with it as the ingredients for fisher tropes. We get the hydrogen from water electrolysis powered by renewable power. And we just match up those two gas streams, goes into fisher tropes, and out comes a synthetic crude, which we then upgrade to SAF. But the electricity to do the electrolysis, though, isn't that expensive? And doesn't that require an awful lot of electricity to do this? I mean, our system has higher power requirements than if you did it differently, but there's trade-offs. We have to locate our facilities in places where we can get a fair amount of sustainable power. So we use renewable, we use wind, solar. In the case of Northern Maine, we use stranded uh, hydroelectric power, which is just ideal for us. And I'm sorry, what's the definition of stranded electrical power? Sure. So in northern Maine, the utilities are powered primarily by hydroelectric power. So we can just tap right into the grid and the carbon intensity, you know, the measure of CO2, how many grams per megajoule is pretty close to zero. So that's the equivalent of powering entirely with wind or solar. Um, it's just much more convenient. It's stranded because the utilities put in the generating capacity of this type of power long ago in the hopes of attracting industrial customers that would use it. And for us, it's a huge attraction because, in fact, renewable power or low carbon intensity power is something we absolutely need for our product. Because other industrial companies haven't moved there and sort of taken up that power, in my mind, I think of it as use it or lose it. So it's just that power goes away and it just doesn't have any customers. So it's it's there for the taking. We do not have to go out and build incremental generating capacity. Okay, so this is excess capacity that exists on the grid and you're exactly. just able to utilize that and put it towards something productive. Otherwise, it would go to waste. Exactly. And let me talk about that a little further, being a resident of Portland, Maine, and watching all the political drama that's coming to Maine, that has come to Maine over high tension lines and trying to run electric lines from Canada or from Arista County down toward Massachusetts so it can be used in places where it's necessary. There have been huge uh, arguments, political arguments and judicial arguments about whether or not it can happen. There was recently a referendum that has blocked a line so that Hydro-Quebec cannot send power to Massachusetts where it's desperately needed. This same power line has been blocked, not just in Maine, but blocked in New Hampshire and blocked in Vermont. And now it may be going to New York. But because of that, there is all this excess capacity, excess electrical generating capacity up in northern Maine that is not in use. And you're able to take advantage of it, which sounds just amazing. From my perspective, it's a perfect location for that exact reason. And in fact, if we can, we're, we're sort of exploring to see how much power is actually there for us, given sort of future requirements for other people. And it may be that we may have the opportunity to double, maybe even more than double the initial size of the facility, which would be, would be ideal. I mean, look, the world needs more SAF and we have no shortage of customers. So uh, that, is, that is a huge draw for us. And let's talk about, for our listeners that may not be aware of the geography, where we're talking about up in Limestone. I'm in Portland, Maine. I'm 300 miles from New York City, more or less. I'm also 
300 miles from Limestone. <laughs> it's about the same distance, but a much shorter drive because there's far less traffic. So it's a huge area way up north in Arusta County that is just it's a county that is just not very populated. And it's you have this facility, the old Loring Air Force Base, that's become the new Loring Commerce Center, where they are truly trying to create places for these businesses to bring population there. So you've come at just the right time. I hope so. As we used to say in Minnesota, bring warm clothes. And I like cold weather. So besides the power, there's an awful lot of timber waste that we can use. We have the infrastructure of the old Loring Air Force Base makes it a little bit easier for us to get the construction up and running. It's going to be essentially a carbon copy of the first facility that we have scheduled for St. James Parish, Louisiana. And I understand it. there's a pipeline from Loring right out to the ocean. So the transfer and the transportation of the SAF is facilitated by sending it by pipeline. We'll put it in ships and then we can bring it down the East Coast to the bigger markets, either Logan Airport in Boston or down to the New York, the major New York City airports. So basically, you're reversing the pipeline that Loring used to use to get their fuel from and sending it back exactly. out. Now, has that been any kind of a political argument here in Maine? Living in South Portland, there was a huge deal with the pipeline that used to, again, bring fuel in from uh, overseas and bring it up to Montreal. And the company now wanted to reverse it and export oil, but South Portland blocked that. Have you had any issues with that at this point? Michael, we have not had any issues. The, the conversations we've had with you know the authorities, the locals, I mean, everything is local. And these projects take a long time. Issues do pop up. We do our best to work our way through them. The support we've received from people of Maine has been incredibly strong. And, you know, we're hopeful that, you know, if there are any political third rails that that have not revealed themselves yet, that we'll find out what they are, we'll deal with them. But, you know, bringing in a, a SAF plant by its nature is less controversial than a lot of other things. We also, along with our project, comes many, many jobs There's a whole lot of things that our presence in northern Maine will do to benefit the community up there. So we're hoping for the best. The interaction we've had to date has been really great. Previously on the Airplane Geeks podcast, we had talked about transporting fuel through the same pipeline and different types of fuel where you could have, let's say, automobile gasoline, then jet fuel, then home heating oil. And it's the same pipe. And just the way laminar flow works in pipelines, it allows for these fluids not to mix. In this particular case, you would be really the exclusive user of the pipeline, or would there be other materials going through the pipeline as well? Right now, Brian, I think we would be the exclusive user of the pipeline. So whatever retrofitting, um, if you will, would need to requ- need to be required, we will do that. But honestly, when you look at the cost savings of being able to transfer fuel by pipeline versus any other mode, it's 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 amazing. And the whole goal is to make SAF and get it transported to airports and have it put into into wing at as low a price as we possibly can. And this is going to be really helpful. And pipelines are also the safest way to transport oil, believe it or not. You're less likely to have any kind of spills than you are from trucks or from trains or anything else. Because while you do hear of pipeline spills, and we have heard about them earlier in the week, they happen, but they actually happen far less than some of the other spills that you hear about when there's a truck accident or a train accident. Now, a byproduct of electrolysis, you're using the hydrogen, is oxygen. Will you be bottling and capturing the oxygen as well and selling that? Is that another product that you'll be producing? 
That is something that we've looked at from time to time. Right now, we've had so many different iterations of our system. At one point, we were generating a lot of excess oxygen. Under the current engineering plan, we actually will use that oxygen within our system. We can do that effectively, and it sort of just goes into the... um, you know, honestly, I don't know. I mean, Mike, Mike is the one who could quote you chapter and verse in infinite detail on exactly how we use the oxygen, but it is a byproduct. It is used within our system. So at this point, we don't plan on selling any. Under prior iterations of the project where we did have a lot of excess, we did sound out the market, uh, especially during COVID. There was, you know, huge demand for, for oxygen. Uh, and this is a particularly pure version of O2. So in the, in the medical community, there's a demand for it. But there's also a question of costs of transportation, in some cases, eat up some of the, you know, the advantages of selling it. Earlier, you were talking about using wood pulp or wood byproduct as part of the biomass. This isn't something that you're actually burning, is it? Do you know how the wood product is, is being used? Yes, the wood goes into uh, the TRI gasifier. So it gets gas, it's basically steam reforming. And so you have to put in the wood in certain uniform sizes. I think what's optimal is one inch cubes. And it goes into the TRI gasifier on a regular basis, 24-7. We're actually going to have six gasifiers. So they'll all be running simultaneously. And if and there's some redundancy built in. So if, if one needs a little bit of maintenance or is down for a little bit, the other five just pick up the slack. And then it gets broken up into, you know, basically it's chemical components and out comes CO2 and a few other things. It goes into the Argos Pox partial oxidation unit, which, you know, cleans out different impurities. And again, as we talked about earlier, the goal from the woody biomass is to isolate carbon monoxide. And that carbon monoxide gets matched up with hydrogen and it goes into Fischer tropes. It comes out in the form of sin crude, which then gets upgraded to SAF. Now, in the ideal version of the DG fuels system, there is some excess CO2 that comes out. And what we do is we capture that and we bring that back into the system, into the Argos pox, and we break up that CO2 into carbon monoxide and additional oxygen. We take that carbon monoxide and we match it up with additional hydrogen that we get from incremental water electrolysis and make more jet fuel. And when people ask, what is our secret sauce? That's basically it. We reform any process excess CO2 into more carbon monoxide. We can make an additional, in our first facility in Louisiana, we're going to start out with approximately 120 million gallons a year of SAF. And we're not going to be able to do this recycle back the CO2 immediately. So we're going to sequester it for a few years. But then we're going to do phase two, where we actually do recycle it back when we're able to get a little more uh, renewable power uh, available to us. But we go from 120 million gallons to 175 million gallons a year without any additional biomass. So that's just by reforming the CO2 and by doing more water electrolysis powered by wind and solar. Yeah, I'm sort of looking at this or thinking about it from a different process. I'm, I'm sort of envisioning a still you know, where you distill spirits. And every time you 
distill the spirit, usually you lose some, but it seems like in this particular case, you can add in another resource that you have and actually get more product out instead of losing product along the way. I, I like the still analogy. I, I wish I knew more about how I, I, I'm familiar with the product of stills, but I haven't <laughs> I, I haven't actually done any still work myself. But I, I think that's right. And in a world where people aren't worried about, can you get enough hydrogen from water electrolysis? People are worried about, is there enough biomass out there when this industry scales up so that projects you know, are able to, at a reasonable and predictable price, get the biomass they need to run these, these types of uh, synthetic fuel projects. So even though there's a lot of agricultural waste today, it's, it is a limited quantity. And we believe because of the way we operate our still, we can make three to four times the amount of SAF with a given amount of, um, of biomass compared to the other technologies that we see out there. So we make more SAF with less biomass. And because of that, we think, again, it translates to being the low cost producer, which we believe we are, not by an insubstantial margin. But that's it's just efficient and it, it makes me feel good. You know, we're, we're doing the best we can and it's, it's highly efficient. And the other thing I was going to say is that when you're taking that CO2 and turning it CO2 carbon dioxide and changing it into CO carbon monoxide, the byproduct is, again, nothing but yep. oxygen. So it's it, beautiful. You know, it works out really well for you. You talked about the gasification plants, and so far, everything looks so absolutely clean. Where's the power coming from for the gasification? In Maine, it'll be sort of the same source, right? So we just plug into the grid, and the grid is very, very clean. In Louisiana, it's a little bit different story. Um, and there's a bunch of regulatory hoops that we have to jump through in order to get our carbon intensity certified at a, at a certain level. So for example, We'll have a combination of, we call it Rex solar power that will be built on our behalf. We plug into the grid in Louisiana, which is kind of dirty. We also are going to have what, what's referred to as behind the meter solar. So on adjacent property, there'll be a substantial amount of solar that hooks up exclusively to our property. But that's maybe 25%. That's probably 20% of our entire power requirement. The balance is going to be incremental solar that we will sponsor in the MISO South grid. It will be built by a solar developer sort of at our request. And then we receive something called renewable energy credits or RECs. And in a way, we then we get credit, even though we're buying relatively dirty power from the grid, we get credit for that incremental solar and then for our C, for CI score purposes, particularly under California rules, California Air Resources Board rules, we're allowed to use RECs for the power that goes exclusively to the hydrogen, the water electrolysis, because there's an exception that allows you to do that if you're making green hydrogen, which is what we're doing. For the gasification, that will be powered by the behind the meter solar. I don't know, Chris. It's starting to sound an awful lot like smoke and mirrors to me when you're talking about Rex. That's where I start to get scared. Hey, well, look, I didn't make up these rules. I'm just jumping through the hoops that have been created for me <laughs> by by the various. We have to we have to satisfy the EPA. We have to satisfy CARB because all our initial, at least from the Louisiana facility, all our initial SAF will be delivered into LAX. Again, as I said before, you know, from Maine, we, we hope to send it to the New York City airport or Logan or, or some other uh, East Coast location. 
Yeah, I just didn't realize that gasification plants, which are basically big steam generators, could be powered electrically. Most of those are always oil or gas fired. And that's what, what I was curious about. You hit the nail on the head, uh, Micah, because we have been going back and forth on whether to use uh, natural gas powered uh, gasification or electric gasification. We basically had to pay for the engineering to be done both ways. But if you do it electrically, yes, you need to arrange for more electric power, which is an issue, but it's you can sort of take care of that. Uh, but it's much more efficient. And if your goal is to make as much SAF as you possibly can with the limited resources, then, then that's actually the way to go. There's some, there's some huge benefits you know, at the engineering level. So are you only going to be producing SAF up in, uh, up in limestone, or would you be producing refining other products as well? The reason that I ask is because most of Maine is still heated by fuel oil. And SAF and fuel oil are very close side by side. And fuel oil, any fuel oil that's coming up to northern Maine is being trucked in. And there's a real shortage this year. So is that something else you might have considered? We have not considered it, but we could do it fairly easily. So so our SAF product is very similar, as you say, to heating oil. It's very similar to the fuel that you might put into an ocean-going vessel. You know, we could make some very, you know, frankly, not that different from renewable diesel. So we could make a few adjustments and we, you know, we're asked the question, well, why don't you make a game time decision? And if you can make a little more selling one product versus another product, why wouldn't you do that? And, and the answer is, for now, we've decided we're in the SAF business. And in order, it kind of goes back to, in order to attract the capital, particularly the debt financing, you have to show long-term offtake contracts. And so it's much easier to go out and get sizable long-term offtake contracts with SAF customers, you know, the major airlines, for example, you know, and we're signing up contracts seven, 10, 15 years long. And because of that, we've sort of committed that we're going to be selling SAF. And are we leaving some other demand unsatisfied? Probably. For now, we're dedicated to the aviation sector. And, you know, at some point, you know, maybe we, we could pivot, but, you know, that's our plan for now. But speaking of long term, when do you think that you'll be in full scale production? We hope to have what they refer to as financial close, where we bring together all our debt and equity and have all our contracts signed sometime very late next summer, maybe maybe fall. So let's say third quarter uh, 2023, it's going to take three and a half years to build. Hopefully first, second quarter of 2027 for delivering fuel. And at the beginning, you know, you don't go, you don't go to hundred percent capacity immediately. Sometimes, you know, so it gets completed and then there's three or four months of tinkering around to, to get it to work correctly. And then you you sort of ramp up to full capacity over maybe six month period. So we think by the end of 2027, we'll hopefully be up to 120 million gallons a year is our current expectation. And, and as I said, if we could sort of implement phase two a couple of years after that, then we'd be up to closer to 175 million gallons. In contrast, in Maine, because we aren't limited in the availability of renewable power, we're going to go to 175 million gallons a year immediately. And I think the main project will probably be, you know, we, we think, and there's a bunch of efficiencies in doing a second project as opposed to a first. So we think that will that will come online, you know, roughly 12 months after Louisiana. So hopefully, uh, let's call it mid 2028, some of that capability will be available. And we also are toying, if, if there's any way we can double 
the size of our footprint in Maine, you know, we may be able to bump it up to more like 350 million gallons a year capacity. But if we do, if we do increase the size, then the construction period is going to be a little bit longer as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I have friends up in Presque Isle that I go visit on occasion. So (laughs) when in in 2028, when it's all happening, I'm going to expect a grand tour. We're going to have to definitely get together. (laughs) You'll be invited to the grand tour. You'll be there for the, the ribbon cutting ceremony. And, 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 and that goes for both of you. I, and if you're not there, I will be sorely disappointed. I spent my entire career in the computer industry, and I understand how incremental approaches have to come in doing any large-scale project. I'm assuming you guys have some sort of a demonstration unit built or some sort of a prototype that's producing product today. If so, how much are you producing? And... What's the next step? How do you scale from the development environment that you're working with now to full-scale production? Brian, we get asked that question all the time. We, we don't have a test site. We're not doing this on a smaller scale and then proving, you know, doing proof of concept and then, and then ramping it up. Every component that we have in our system, in contrast, is out there. It's operating and has, uh, you know, and has proven itself in a variety of different contexts. We've just cherry-picked a variety of, of different technologies and sort of reassembled them in a way that's in a, in a more clever fashion. You know, for example, the, uh, the Fulcrum project, which, you know, is mechanically completed, but they haven't, and they're making syn gas. So in other words, they're making the gas that goes into Fisher Tropes, but they're not at the point yet where they've, they're producing syn crude, which is, you know, the liquid product that comes out of the Fisher Tropes unit. They're very similar to the technology that we use. Probably for the first sixty percent of their technology, it's the it's not just the same technology; it's the same suppliers. It's the exact same units. And so, you know, every day we look to see, you know, if they've announced that they've sort of accomplished that that next milestone step. But in a way, you know, they're our test case. We are different enough. They use municipal municipal solid waste. We use timber waste. There's other things about ours that you know we think are maybe a little bit less risky, but it's probably too glib to just point to them. Uh, and and honestly, I don't. I'm not super comfortable that you know you know our success is 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 not tied to you know when those guys get to the finish line. But but we do not have you know we don't have like a small DG fuels project out there that we're then going to scale up. The other thing is just by nature of the SAF problem. If we did that, which is the typical way of going, then SAF is not going to be available in any meaningful supply for 15 years. You know, nobody, you know, we have to go big. We have to go big now. Yeah, but the question I have, though, if you don't have any proof of concept, any prototype, when you get all your ducks in a row and build the facility, isn't it kind of a big gamble if it'll actually work and you get the numbers that you're claiming that you're going to get? Well, like I said, every single major component that we have is out there. It's proven technology. And we have, you know, you raise a good point, but we have what we think are probably the world's best engineers for this kind of project is Black & Veatch. We have a company called Lidos, which is the independent engineer, and they're issuing an independent engineer's report. They're very experienced in this exact kind of technology. There's companies in the insurance industry, um, one company that we speak to quite a bit called New Energy Risk, that will come out and actually they'll provide an insurance policy that, you know, if you build it, it will work, you know, type of policy, which which in some cases is very valuable. 
But it, it kind of comes down to how well educated are the debt and equity investors you know, in this particular space and how comfortable can they get? And so as we go through due diligence with, with a variety of potential investors, you know, the ones that really are sort of probably going to get to the finish line are the ones that have gone out. They either have, you know, a massive number of process scientists and process engineers on staff where they really can get to a very granular level on the technology and they have familiarity with gasification. They have familiarity with water electrolysis and fisher tropes. Those are, I mean, it's, it's really um, in, in a world with, you know, investors that look at trillions of dollars of deals, there's a really a small subset that are, are in a position to reasonably evaluate the opportunity. You see, that's what I loved about the project when I first heard about it. When it comes right down to it, it's science, it's chemistry, and it's physics. And we know how that works, and we've known how that works for a long time. And what you're doing is putting together the engineering, proven engineering, that's been done in other ways, and you're just applying it in a new way to come up with something that's necessary at this time. Yep. It's really, really interesting. And I wish you guys the best of luck and looking forward to flying in a, in a jet with your product in the wings. Well, it sounds like you fly in and out of LAX quite a bit. So uh, that's that's our destination. That that I do. <laughs> All right. So Chris, thank you so much for joining us here on the Airplane Geeks podcast. And it was just a pleasure learning so much about DG Fuels. Thank you. Thank you, Micah. Thank you for having me. Next, Brian Coleman and I talked with Dr. Uri Yoroshami, co-founder and chief AI at Fetcher, about continuous pricing models and how they can address challenges faced by the airlines. I'm here with Brian Coleman. Brian, hi, it's good to see you again. How are you doing? Hey, Max. Long time no talk. I know. Actually, it was just last night we recorded an episode. Well, Brian and I have a guest that we are speaking with today. And because of time zone changes, it's uh, not at all practical to do that during our normal recording time. So uh, we're doing this uh, kind of off schedule, but that's fine. And our guest is Dr. Uri Yurulshami, who is the co-founder and chief AI at Fetcher, an Israeli tech company that developed a proprietary AI-powered engine it predicts demand and enables continuous pricing for the airline industry. Now, this company was founded in 2019 by experts in the fields of deep learning and algo trading, e-commerce, digitization of legacy architecture. So, Uri, uh, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Hi, Max. Hi, Brian. Thank you for having me on. It's great to be here. Yeah, I think this is going to be a really special conversation. Definitely looking forward to this one. I am too. And um, it may get a little techy, but that's, uh, that's great because we love the details. We love the tech. And we want to talk about continuous pricing models and how they solve challenges that airlines are facing and maximize their revenue. But Uri, let's start by defining some pricing model terms. What is a continuous pricing model? And is that the same as dynamic pricing? Well, th these terms are often used in, in the market, and actually they are only the, the tip of the iceberg. When, when we're talking about continuous pricing, we're talking about the fact that uh, the price can be at any price level. Because currently, the, the carriers usually bucket prices 
into certain levels. So the jumps and the uh, uh, changes in the price are, are done in a discrete manner. And the issue of having dynamic prices relates to how often do they ch- actually change the prices. So currently, the prices are being changed in jumps, in buckets, and they are not done very frequently. But that's only the symptom. The, the problems are originated. Why do they do that? And that mainly re- relates to some defective structures in the market that originated decades ago. And these pricing buckets that you're talking about, these are the fair basis that I think many of our listeners might be familiar with, where you buy a Y fair or a B fair or a W or however the airline does it, right? These are those buckets, correct? Yes, yes. These are exactly the buckets. And and that relates to, to the fact that it makes sense. I mean, it at least made sense back in the 80s where the technology did not have enough capacity to, to take care of all combinations of origins, destinations, number of stops, uh, number of days in advance purchase, stay days. It, it makes the pricing quite complex. And many of these micro decisions of how to make the pricing were made by humans. So it, it did make sense to make uh, the decisions much more uh, simple by bucketing them. So I, as a human, it's much easier for me to have certain levels of prices and only de- then to decide what level would be available to the public. And what are some of the considerations that airlines uh, can employ in uh, developing these kinds of pricing models? What are the inputs? We can divide it to two types of inputs. First, when the airline needs to make a decision, it looks of what is the current capacity in the, in the flight. What is the current load factor? Is my airplane full or is it not? Um, how many days in advance is the passenger going to buy the ticket? How many days is he going to stay at the destination? Because the passengers that are staying shorter amount of days are uh, usually having a higher willingness to pay. Uh, seasonality, um, number of stops, uh, of course, connection flights versus non-connection flights. Some routes are more, uh, uh, have more demand compared to others. Times of day. Th- these are the more uh, traditional aspects that almost all airlines use now to make the pricing decision. And probably other industries as well, too. I mean, the, the, the specific factors might be different, but I imagine other industries also use kind of pricing models like this. They must. Yeah, the, the issue is that uh, the, the types of pricing models get more and more uh, simple as the complexity of the market uh, rises. And the complexity in the airlines is, is quite big because you have many such factors. And therefore, it makes sense to use uh, simpler and simpler uh, types of models. Uh, and when I say simpler, it means, for example, 
at least until COVID, it made sense to to always make year-on-year comparisons, to look what happened last year and based on that to make the decisions. Uh, it also made sense not to, not to price 24-7. I mean, in weekend, during weekends, the pricing team is off, so no one really makes the changes in, in prices and unless there is some revenue management system that that makes some uh, simple automatic changes. So the the structure has uh, got into this a situation where there are a lot of aggregations in the pricing decisions. Uh, there are a lot of rounding of corners, uh, which makes uh, a lot of problems in the actual dynamics in the market. For example it adds friction to the market because if the price is not optimized because of all of the reasons that I presented before, uh, then it might be in some cases too high, in some cases too low, uh, which introduces the inefficiency in the market and in every market. Wherever there is some inefficiency, some middleman comes in. And and these players that are not the carriers and not the passengers, they need to make money of something. And that uh, that is on the account of the revenue of the airline from one side and the price of the passenger on the other side. It also introduces a lot, a lot of volatility in prices. I, I'm sure in one of your uh, flights, uh, Brian, uh, you have sit to someone that maybe paid half of what you paid for the flight. No, usually the other way around, but sure, I get your point. <laughs> uh, maybe at the beginning, anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so these inefficiencies and th- these types of volatilities are not uh, healthy for the market. And with the continuous prices, uh, pricing, we expect it to be uh, much lower. It also in- introduces the human factor. I mean, whoever makes the pricing decisions or the major one is uh, is a human that costs uh, money for the airline. It doesn't do that 24-7. And uh, eventually someone needs to pay for it. So let me, I guess, start off with a disclaimer and maybe disclaimer is not the right word, but as a capitalist, I absolutely love what you're doing. As a consumer, it I find it um, uh, concerning, right? Because you're creating a system for the airlines or whatever industry to maximize their profit and make money off of me, which again, as a consumer, I'm not necessarily a fan of. But being a business person and a capitalist, absolutely love the idea. So with that in mind, I think one of the industries that this technology could certainly lend itself to that does, in my opinion, a horrendous job of pricing is actually the cruise industry. Because, and I've spent some years working uh, for a cruise line, and their pricing model's just terrible. And as the ship gets closer to sailing, unlike the airline industry where they tend to raise prices because business travelers will pay more for the ticket, the cruise line will actually discount their their beds and or their cabins, I should say, 
So they'll discount their cabins, and then they're absolutely not maximizing their profit along the way. Yeah, we, we have looked at uh, uh, several verticals in, in the travel industry, and we have chosen the airlines as the anchor of the travel industry. And these inefficiencies are all around the place. We've seen them in cruise lines, in hospitality, in car rentals. And as for your comment about the, the passengers, uh, having the right pricing doesn't necessarily say that it's going to be on the account on, of the passenger. Because lowering frictions in the market would eventually make the market more competitive. It would uh, get uh, players like middlemen out of uh, the market. And in such industries, we've seen, uh, we've seen the passengers or the end customers also having some, some advantages because of such changes. So what approach uh, have you been taking uh, to address this issue? We are taking, we, we come from technology aspects. I'm, uh, for the more than a, tec- a decade before founding Fetcher, I was in an algo trading uh, industry. And actually, we see ourselves as an algo trading based company. And, and the algo stands for algorithm? Al- algorithmic trading. Yes. Yes. Okay. Just, you, you can see it as a hedge fund. Well, what, what does a hedge fund do? A hedge fund uh, uses variety of strategies to trade in the capital market in order to generate return for its investors. Now, we are using the same types of strategies in order to create a revenue uplift for the airline. And these types of uh, models have been proven for many years in capital markets, and we are just transitioning them to the airline industry. And so the, uh, you're bringing some, uh, some artificial intelligence or machine learning um, technology to this problem? Yes. So it starts with gathering the right data. So... One of the problems in uh, existing models in, in, in the market that there is no model that at the same time looks at all relevant sources of data. We look at the same time at the ticketing uh, data of the airline, at its booking, at its historical availability. We look at the airline's flight schedules. We look at the competitor prices. Uh, We look at uh, futures of oil, because we know that oil uh, also affects the market. We look at new sentiments, uh, weather, events in the market. Uh, We look at data from other verticals like hospitality, because we know there is correlation between hospitality prices and car rental prices and flights. We gather all of that, and then we apply a technologies uh, based on deep learning and reinforcement learning in order to estimate exactly for every flight, every type of seats, for every price level, what is the likelihood of certain passenger to buy that ticket. 
Hmm. I'm curious, the data that you're getting, is that coming from uh, data aggregators or are you relying on the airlines themselves to provide this information? Uh, of course, it's a combination. Uh, no one can give us the, uh, uh, other than the airline can give us the historical ticketing data of the airline. So we are getting that part from the airline. And we are also working very closely with data aggregators to get more public types of data. Now, uh, about the technologies, uh, these types of technologies uh, have emerged in the last decade or, or two. And you have seen it, uh, these technologies in many places. Uh, recently, uh, I don't know whether you have played with it. Uh, have you played with ChatGPT? Mm -hmm. Yes, we, we have a little bit. So it's... It is also based uh, quite heavily on, on deep learning and reinforcement learning. We, we know these technologies from uh, autonomous driving cars, from uh, generation of pictures like DAL-E. Uh, we've seen it in Amazon Go where uh, it plays uh, a Go game. Uh, automatically and it's quite good at it. So these types of technologies are being applied on our system uh, in order first to predict quite accurately the behavior of the market, which includes the demand of the passengers, the, their demand elasticity, the demand of the competitors, because, you know, some carriers tend to match prices, uh, some carriers don't. Uh, so that's also being analyzed by, by the system. And then we are searching for the optimal uh, price point that would generate the maximal revenue for the airline. And that's done by uh, repeating simulations of what's going to happen in the market next whenever we are making the price points uh, decisions. So there's a thing that's driven me crazy about the airline industry for such a long time, and it's around aircraft utilization. And you have historical data where, for example, a trade show might happen. For example, CES is coming up in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be 100,000 plus people showing up in Las Vegas that normally don't show up Monday through Friday, but yet the first week in January, they show up. And this trade show has been happening for decades now. But yet the airlines continue to run a 737 into Las Vegas instead of upgaging to a 767 or a 777, whatever. It seems like your technology could be used for aircraft utilization with this other data in addition to ticket pricing. Yeah, yeah, of course. So first, I, I have to admit that uh, uh, what we have discovered in airlines is that these types of considerations are not taken seriously enough, even in the pricing. Hmm. So such systems do take that into to account. And one of the uh, next uh, 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 versions that uh, is going to be, uh, that we have in our roadmap is also taking care of uh, that field that is called revenue uh, network management. Mm. So 
the changing the the aircraft is part of the revenue management and that's something that can also be taken care of which such a system yeah this this feels like it could permeate throughout a lot of the operations of an of an airline of an airport uh, of your of your customers uh, beyond just just the pricing aspect to it as you were developing this, uh, did you work with a, a specific airline, or did you kind of develop the you know the initial versions of this just using publicly available data? How integrated uh, with a with an airline or airlines have you been throughout the development process? Yeah, so the, here uh, we, we have an interesting uh, thing. All of us, we, we don't come from airline industry. So uh, when we saw uh, this uh, uh, opportunity, we started, uh, we started first by checking whether uh, models and algorithms taken from the capital markets, whether they are applicable on also in, uh, in commerce, in e-commerce. So initially we developed... Uh, Years ago, we developed a model that predicts the future prices of Amazon products. And it was uh, quite successful. Uh, and then uh, we searched for the right industry to apply it on. And uh, we got to, to the airline industry as, as an anchor of the uh, travel and uh, now uh, we are in a phase where uh, such a product is already uh, running live uh, with uh, Azul Airlines, uh, if you know them. Yes, uh, Brazil. Now, for choosing our customers, uh, we see it as a product that is uh, going to serve many different airlines. So uh, we classify the airlines uh, to low-cost and the traditionals. So we have chosen from each such category a representative. So uh, Azul, uh, we saw it as a major uh, low-cost uh, uh, airline that has a strong presence in Latin America, where we are working with them uh, there. In the field of uh, traditional airlines, we have chosen one of the 10 biggest global airlines, and uh, we are onboarding there too. And uh, at the same time, we are also uh, working with one of the leading brands uh, in a maybe a slightly different manner uh, where we are applying there uh, a version of, of the system that is quite futuristic uh, and we see it as in the inevitable f uh, version of the system that changes a lot of things in the airline. So we are also also on that airline too. Hmm. I'm curious. The uh, most companies in the airline or the aviation industry tend to be very conservative, uh, which is good. We like that, especially as uh, as flyers. Uh, as uh, you all were coming uh, from outside the uh, airline environment uh, background was there some resistance or did did you have a difficult time getting the attention of potential customers uh, when when you introduced them to what you were doing 
Yeah, so here I, I, I must admit that uh, we see uh, something in, in all airlines, we see a gap, and that gap is between the understanding of the airline of its need to apply some technology in the airline and its fear of applying that technology <laughs> in the airline. And that gap is apparent in all airlines. So for uh, overcoming that gap, uh, we have came up with an onboarding process that is very risk-free. And in risk-free, uh, we, we know that airlines don't like to make changes. Mm -hmm. And we know that uh, a system like a revenue management is a spinal cord of the airline and no one would touch it. So uh, that risk-free process works in, in a manner where we are just piggybacking on top of the existing system of the airlines, listening to, to the data, uh, without making uh, any changes, we are also, the, the, our pricing decisions can support all of the existing rules and constraints in the airline, meaning if, if the airline decides for some reason, and usually these reasons, no one knows them, but the, the airline decides that a certain fare must always be uh, more expensive than another fare, and when you dig in, you discover that the one that decided it no longer works there for several years. So we can support all of these decisions, all of these rules and constraints and make the right changes and the, uh, the price recommendations are injected in, into a certain point that the airline decides. So th this type of, of piggybacking is uh, not intrusive and it can be done quite gradually. So usually the airline would uh, start with this single uh, route, uh, OD, origin to destination, and make some type of A-B testing. And when the airline sees that uh, in that route there is a revenue uplift, the airline would usually scale up, add gradually more and more ODs until the whole network is supported by the system. So an interesting thing's happened here in Los Angeles with American Airlines. And they have pulled out of Asia almost entirely. And they said that they've pulled out because they cannot compete on pricing. And they're saying the Asian carriers are being subsidized or doing unfair pricing practices. Therefore, American can't compete. And instead of lowering their prices and continuing to lose money, they're just pulling out of the market. Is your technology something that could help American deal with an external factor such as, again, I'll say possibly unfair pricing competition or incentives or other third-party market effects so one of the factors that is taken into account in the, in the system is the is the behavior of the competitor now uh, these systems are originated from the capital markets and in the capital markets uh, the, the the competition is wild I mean, the, the aggressiveness of the decision-making and the speed in which you are making the changes 
is not comparable to what we, we see in the airline industry. So the answer is yes. When uh, such a system uh, looks at the competitor and it understands that a certain competitor is losing money because of, uh, of its uh, uh, pricing decisions, it takes advantage of it. And by taking advantage of it, it knows how to behave for making the competitor stopping doing that because it knows that competitors don't like to lose money. Um, so yes, these practices are well known in capital markets and we, we have seen them. The, the beauty here is that the decision making is not done by a human. So it's not emotionally biased. The decision making is cold. It knows how what is going to happen in the uh, in the market because of the decision making it usually makes the right decision it's almost like magic to me because uh when it comes to artificial intelligence uh my background in that area goes back oh i don't know 30 years when ai meant uh, writing lisp programs and so we're we're a f we've come a long way since then um, I, I don't fully understand uh, how it works. There's there's a quote. I don't know if I got it from the Fetcher website or or something, but uh, the the quote is a, a believer for many years that AI architectures um, that are based on biological principles. What does that mean? Okay, that that's. Uh, I think that's uh, a quote I used uh, somewhere. Now. If you look at AI, not too long ago, AI before 2012, until 2012, when you use the term AI, it usually meant making decisions that are imitating human intelligence in ways that are uh, very mathematical, very step-by-step, uh, step, a lot of if-else things, uh, very accurate descriptions of how to get to the right solution. Now, uh, our brain doesn't work that way. When I say biological uh, uh, imitation, it means how, how do we think? And we we don't think in such a way. We have many connections about our uh, among our brain cells and these connections somehow surprisingly work and uh, these principles that uh, before uh, before 2012 there were called the neural networks if if you know the the term um these principles uh, until then they did not uh, show uh, a lot of promise, uh, but I personally always believed in them. That's why I, I went and made my PhD in in that field, in computational neuroscience. And uh, surprisingly, a few years after I finished my PhD, it, it all blasted. And now we, we are in the area where we're going to see self-driving cars and uh, Siri and so of the technology that you guys have, are you borrowing from or utilizing technology like IBM Watson, or is it all in-house 
developed software that you're using? What what technology? It is all in-house developed. It is all based on architectures of neural networks and deep learning and reinforcement learning that is developed in-house. IBM Watson is not a good example because it's not based on the, these types of uh, principles. Uh, but Yeah, but I think it's the most publicly known example of deep learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, well, uh, since I, IBM Watson came out, there are many more known uh, uh, examples. Uh, I, I, I mentioned the chat GPT because I, I'm also enthusiastic about it and I play with these uh, examples uh, infinitely, even if it's my field. Yeah, so th these technologies are changing every day and developing every day and I... I I feel blessed to work in such a field that I enjoy so much. And then years ago, you really needed either a mainframe or a cluster computing in order to do this processing. Do you still, or is this simple enough now to run, or I should say, are servers today powerful enough just to run this off of a single server? Yeah, that, that's a that's a good point. So uh, now the the hardware has also developed uh, quite substantially towards that direction, and there are uh, there is special hardware for uh, uh, running and training neural network models. Hardware, uh, maybe you've heard the term GPU. Mm -hmm. uh, GPU cards are uh, heavily used by us. And uh, another field ha that has also uh, emerged in, in, in the last uh, decades is uh, cloud computing. So we don't need to buy uh, now uh, clusters of servers to, to do that. We are working very closely with uh, Google uh, and get our GPUs up and running uh, when needed using uh, cloud computing, which is very, very uh, useful. Hmm. Uri, where do you think this is going from an aviation standpoint? Uh, what are these technologies going to uh, allow us to accomplish in the, in the coming years? Is there a relationship between this and possibly future uh, pilotless aircraft or anything like that? Well, when I look at it from more trading perspective i i remember when i started uh, trading more than a decade before founding fetcher i was listening to the guys that uh, started trading when nasdaq came out back in the 90s and if you compare the the capital markets before nasdaq and after nasdaq everything has changed so that's how we see the new era in uh, in pricing and revenue management of airlines. So we we see it as an era where the prices would be much more stable. A lot of automation is going to occur in the airlines in these fields, uh, which would mean also uh, lowering prices. Uh, there would be less middlemen in the field because of that. 
that's only in the field of pricing and revenue management. As for other uh, operational aspects of airline, yeah, sure. I'm, uh, I'm sure a lot is going to change to, thanks to uh, AI technologies. Yeah, I could see this moving towards even things like pricing of seats. Right. Many airlines don't allow you to um, have a free pre-assigned seat or you could pay where um, where you sit on the plane or having on demand pricing for meals or checked luggage. It just seems like there are multiple places that an airline can go to maximize revenue. Yes, exactly. That's part of that. uh aggregational uh, consideration that I mentioned before. Because uh, if you are not using AI, then you need to aggregate many seats together. But in a system like us, we can price every seat uh, separately, in every flight separately. Currently, uh, most airlines don't price flights. They are pricing the route and setting fares for the whole route. In such systems, we are very, very granular in our uh, decision-making in the level of of seats in flights. And you also mentioned some uh, ancillaries. Uh, That's also something that is uh, in our roadmap and is going to be included in such a system where the pricing decision for an ancillary would be combined as a bundle with the flight for every type of ancillary together. I don't know, Brian, this is, uh, this is amazing stuff. It's uh, a yeah, brave new world kind of, uh, kind of a conversation. I'm uh, pretty excited. And yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, something that I don't know, a college professor uh, once um, said that um, you, know, you can have a crystal ball and you can polish it as much as you want, but if the glass is cloudy, you're not gonna you're not gonna see what's coming. And I, I have a feeling this is uh, you know kind of like that as well. Yeah. So th- that relates to having uh, having the right data in, uh, making the right decision, ha- having the right pipelines to to apply the decisions uh, in the airline uh, properly. Uh, yeah, uh, making the prediction right is not enough you need also to uh, being able to apply the decision properly. Yes. And again, I think this boils down to my initial comment over, I want airlines to be profitable. I want them to maximize revenue. But yet as a consumer, I want to pay the least amount possible for that particular good or service. And finding that balance, I find so intriguing and such a challenge. Yeah, I, I explained uh, uh, an example to Brian Exie, I think it was yesterday, where, uh, and this was some, a few years ago, where uh, I was uh, downstairs and my wife was upstairs, and we were researching something independently. I can't remember, a product, I can't remember what, but we both ended up on Amazon looking at the exact same product. And I came upstairs to my laptop and said, look what I found. And she said, I just found the same thing. And the prices were different for the, uh, for the two of us. And that was the first time we encountered you know, anything, uh, anything like that. 
uh, is, is similarly will will uh, uh, travelers who are looking at ticket prices uh, also find that the pricing could be different for different people in in seemingly the same situation. Yeah, so that relates to the question of uh, price discrimination. Mm. And uh, currently, uh, we don't see uh, airlines uh, doing that. Uh, Of course, uh, whenever an airline chooses to do price discrimination, it can always do it now with AI and without AI. Uh, but there is a lot to be done using AI to make the right decisions about pricing, even without these discriminations. You you don't need it. Maybe in a, a, a vertical that is very dense and competitive, like e-commerce, it gets to a place where you need to apply price discrimination in order to, to survive. But... I think the airline industry is is far away, uh, lightier from uh, needing to do that. The the, the airlines uh, are in a situation where they have to start applying AI to making simple decisions, like what should be the price in a certain cabin for a certain uh, departure date. And uh, th- these tools are inevitable for doing that. Mm. Well, you, you say that, but yet there's a major legacy U.S. airline that a few years back um, tested a program where based on the browser, they did different pricing. And their logic was if people can afford a Macintosh, mm. they can afford to pay a higher price. So yeah, yeah. they had different banding for the buckets, but it was a very simplistic model. And again, as a capitalist, I kind of like that idea. As a consumer, I absolutely hate it. Yeah, personally, I don't like these types of uh, discriminations too. Uh, but note that, uh, as I said uh, a player that wants to do these acts can always do them. It's unrelated to whether you have AI or, or don't. Yeah, fascinating. All right, Uri, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Where can our listeners go to uh, learn more uh, about Fetcher? Probably the website? Yes, the, the website is a great place to start. So it's F-E-T-C-H-E-R-R dot I-O. Uh, where, where does the name Fetcher come from it uh, it gets uh, from get, fetching the right price at the right moment yeah that's what i that's kind of what i thought <laughs> so I, i'm i'm glad yeah, that i figured it out it works it definitely works uh, again thank you so much i, I think it's been a fascinating conversation uh, i think our our listeners are going to find this quite interesting i know i have uh, i think brian has as well so again thank you very much thank you very much it was a pleasure talking to you guys thank you Thanks. Finally, our main man, Micah, has his traditional look back at the year just ended. So Max and I were talking a few weeks ago. The conversation was about planning the last few episodes of the Airplane Geeks for 2022 and the first episodes of 2023. Yes, you may not realize it, but the Airplane Geeks podcast is planned out. There's a tremendous amount of work in the planning and editing of the podcast. The recording of the show is actually the easy part. Max deserves incredible kudos for all he does, both pre- and post-show. 
If I haven't said it before, thank you, Max. But anyway, we were talking about the new year, and I said, well, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do a year-in-review piece. Not much happened in my life aviation-wise this year. I told him I might be able to do something quickly, a brief summary of the few things that took place, and in a good-natured way, Max said, that would be just fine. So I started to think back about 2022 from an aviation perspective. Not a lot really came to mind. Then I pulled up my Photos app and went back through the year to see if anything struck me, if indeed I really had anything to write about. Holy ravioli! I must be getting old and forgetful. Apparently, I had quite a year of aviation events. It amazed me that so much had drifted to the back of my mind. First of all, in February, I was in England, celebrating the PTUK 400th episode. That feels so long ago now that it could have taken place a decade ago. But then again, as I think about it, it feels like yesterday. It was my wrong-way Cargan event as I flew from Portland, Maine to London Heathrow via San Francisco. Just a short 3,000-mile detour. But I was happy to do it, as it meant that Brian Coleman and I could fly together, and all in United Polaris class, I might add. Now, you've already heard this story on the Airplane Geeks, episode 609, so I won't go into those details. But traveling with Brian is always a lot of fun. Brian had already started the Journey is Reward podcast, and we recorded several episodes during our visit as we traveled through England. I must say, Brian is fearless. We knew the meetup with PTUK was at the Brooklands Museum in Weybridge, and I wasn't sure how we were going to get there. But Brian said, let's rent a car. I'll drive. Riding through the English countryside in the left front seat of a manual transmission car while Brian was driving from the right seat was a trip in more ways than one for this U.S. driver. I wanted to keep my eyes closed, but I couldn't as a first officer and navigator. But we muddled our way through without any problems. Now, you probably know that Brian has friends all over the world, including, as it turns out, friends that own the Greyhound Inn about 60 miles east of Heathrow in the village of Letcombe Regis. We planned to visit and have a traditional English Sunday roast from their gourmet kitchen. We also made reservations to stay there overnight. Dinner was superb, and for dessert I had my first ever sticky toffee pudding, something I had wanted to try for years. Wow! I was also able to try a Scotch whiskey that was new to me. Bunabayan. Bunabayan? Bunhabane. That's it. Bunhabane. I won't go into details, but... Well, let me just say, I'm glad we decided to spend the night. The next day, we left for Heathrow and stopped by Windsor Castle for tea with the Queen. Unfortunately, Her Majesty had other plans, so we just continued to our hotel. The trip was just fabulous. I learned a lot and had some great new experiences. It was my first time in United Polaris class, first time in the Polaris lounges, which, by the way, are great. And I also learned that it's not a good idea to go out for Indian food and have a curry the night before a long international flight. Apparently, Delta P applies to people, too. Things were pretty quiet for me aviation-wise for the next few months. Of course, I would visit the Mac Jets FBO at the Portland Jetport. I got to see a bunch of great GA aircraft, and both a C-130 and C-17 came to visit during that time. I am so lucky to have KPWM close to my home and also fortunate to have been able to make some great friends at MacJets. In May, we got some awful news. Glenn Towler, longtime listener and good friend of the show from New Zealand, very unexpectedly flew west. 
It was a sudden and tragic loss as we said farewell to the mayor of Oshkosh. June brought something that, while not quite aviation-related, was one of my 2022 highlights. I was invited to attend the christening of DDG-122, the USS John Bazalone at Bath Ironworks. John Bazalone was the only U.S. Marine who, during World War II, was awarded both the Medal of Honor and the Navy Cross. He has always been a hero of mine, and what an honor it was to be able to attend the christening of this Flight 2A Arleigh Burke-class guided missile destroyer named in his honor. Recently, July has become one of the most wonderful times of the year for me, and this year it just seems slam-packed. Yes, you heard me and Max talk about the Spurwing Farm Pancake Breakfast and Fly-In ad nauseum. It's the aviation event that has taken place in Cape Elizabeth, Maine, the Sunday after the 4th of July, for over 25 years now. But let me tell you something about it that I haven't really talked about that made it even more special for me this year. You know how we aviation enthusiasts often have different groups of friends? You know what I mean. There are your airplane friends who get it, and then your friends that kind of know about your love of aircraft but don't really understand. Well, this year... I was able to get my friends from both groups together. Sure, you all know Max Flight joined me at Spurwing Farm this year. Mike Smith, J.D. Goldstein, and Bill Barry were there, too. But also in attendance were some of my best friends from here in Maine who could care less about airplanes. And the best part, everyone got along well. And even my non-aviation friends enjoyed the event so much that they all said they planned to come back in 2023. Yep, the 2022 Spurwing Farm Pancake Breakfast and Fly-In was the best ever. The Wednesday after the fly-in, the Airplane Geek celebrated a milestone, over 14 years of podcasts. Well, the actual 14th year of podcasting came up a few weeks earlier, but we saved the celebration for a special episode number. We recorded episode 707. What was the topic? just one of the most historic commercial aircraft of all times, the Boeing 707, and in particular, Sam 27000, the second of two Boeing VC-137Cs, a specially built model, 707-353B, that served seven U.S. presidents in over 29 years of service. Also this year at the fly-in, I was invited to attend the unveiling of the University of Maine Augusta's aviation program's new Cirrus SR-20. Less than two weeks later, I was there. What a beautiful event. Not only did I get to see their beautiful new Cirrus, I had the opportunity to speak with Major General Douglas A. Farnham, the Adjutant General for the State of Maine, Dr. Joseph Zakis, Interim President of UMA, and Greg Jolda, the Aviation Program Director. Later in July, I had a funny thing happen to me. I was at a barbecue at a friend's house with a group of people I had casually known for years. One of them was on her way to Afghanistan and I started to ask her about her travel plans. You know, airlines, connections, layovers, all the stuff that goes through my head when I hear about someone traveling. I learned a lot and gave her a bunch of information that I knew would help her out. The kind of stuff that geeks like you and me know about, but the general public are often oblivious to. So she asked how I knew so much about these things. I told her I was really into aviation and had been since I was a kid. At this point, her husband entered the conversation and said he enjoyed aviation podcasts and regularly listened to the airplane geeks. I asked him if he ever heard me on the show, and he said, That's you? I just sort of laughed and said, We've known each other for years, and only now you realize that it's been me on the geeks all along? We cracked another beer and started talking airplanes for the rest of the afternoon. August was just amazing. 
based on my friendship with the people at the Mac Jets FBO at the Portland Jetport, I knew that Marine Medium Tilt Rotor Training Squadron 204, the Raptors, were coming up to Maine to run training exercises. It turned out that they would be here the same week as my birthday, and I couldn't have asked for a better birthday present. I dropped by early in the week and was able to meet one of VMMT 204's training officers and asked if I could possibly tour an Osprey and interview him about its mission. He told me he couldn't do it right then, but if I came back the next day, he would arrange it for me. I was thrilled. That night, I got in touch with regular listener and local helicopter pilot Ernie Eaton, knowing he would be interested, and invited him along the next day. Sure enough, the Marines came through. Lieutenant Rachel Hardinger took me on a tour of her MV-22, including a chance to get in the cockpit. She was kind enough to spend a lot of time being interviewed for the geeks, and even brought us back out on the hot tarmac and back to the Osprey to answer some more questions that came up in our discussion. It was the first time I had ever seen an MV-22 in the flesh. Being that they were here all week, I got to see them fly. I got to see them take off and land. I got to see them hover. I even got to watch one of them fold up its rotors and wings for storage. I must say, the Osprey is an amazing bird. What a great birthday present. September was pretty quiet, but in October, Lister Mark Van Ram came to Portland on a cruise ship, and we had a chance to meet up. We'd been planning it for over a year when he booked the cruise, and it was worth the wait. We had a great lunch at Becky's Diner on the Portland waterfront, one of my favorite places. Visited the Liberty Ship Memorial near the Bug Light Lighthouse on South Portland, and even managed to catch the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Hospital EC-635 Eurocopter at the Portland Jetport that must have just come in from Lebanon, New Hampshire to either pick up or drop off a patient at Maine Medical Center. What else happened in 2022? Well, over the course of the year, I got to hang out with my airplane geek friends on the show on multiple occasions. I also got to meet online and interview some great people with Brian and bring those interviews to you here on the Airplane Geeks. Another great thing from 2022, I learned that I was not the source of Rob's pain in the neck and that a surgical procedure had fixed him right up. At first, when Rob told me he was having his neck pain taken care of, I was afraid he meant he had one of his Chicago buddies put a hit on me. There was a lot more plane spotting over at Mac Jets. This included one of NOAA's Dash 6 Twin Otters, a Department of Homeland Security's Eurocopter AS-350, a Dassault Falcon 7X, and a Gulfstream G-4, among many others. Then there was a beautiful Cirrus SF-50 vision jet that I was admiring while it was being shut down. I figured I'd wait and see if the pilot would speak with me when he came inside the terminal. Frankly, I was hoping to get an invitation to head out and see the inside of a vision jet for my first time. When a pilot came in, I casually struck up a conversation, and we introduced ourselves to each other. It turned out he was John Bush. That's President George H.W. Bush's nephew and President George W. Bush's cousin. He had just moved to Maine and asked if I knew anything about the Spurwing Farm fly-in. Well, as you can imagine, we just started talking and would have gone on for quite some time, until his wife called him from the parking lot, saying she was here to pick him up. But who knows? Maybe I'll run into him again. So it seems I had a lot more happen to me this year in the world of aviation than I thought. Overall, it seems it was a pretty good year of airplane geek aviation. I hope yours was as well, and that we even have better times in 2023. For the Airplane Geeks, Happy New Year from here in Portland, Maine. From all of us and from me, your main man, Micah. All right. Thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. 
Next week, we'll return to our usual format with the co-hosts and an industry guest. As always, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. And the permanent shortcut link that redirects to the show notes for this episode is airplanegeeks.com slash 731. You can reach us via email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. So please join us next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody.